This is TechSnap, episode 375. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on July 19th, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you a bit about them as the show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, the admin, the presenter, and the teacher. Why, yes, it's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello there, Chris. I got kind of excited on that intro, you know? I was sort of fired up there for a moment. Maybe it's because we have such a great show, Wes. Our warm-up story this week is about our friends over at Cisco. They have just a few updates for us. I think more than a few. Actually, they've just released 25 security updates, including a critical patch for the Cisco policy suite that removes an undocumented password for, you guessed it, the root account. I'm sorry, undocumented password, root account, what? Yeah, nothing we've ever talked about here on TechStep before. So this is CVE 2018-0375, and it has kind of a huge impact, mostly just due to what the Cisco policy suite is. And if you're like me, you actually weren't that familiar with the Cisco policy suite before reading this news story, and it's actually a complex piece of software available in three editions, mobile Wi-Fi, and Broadband Network Gateway Edition that Cisco sells primarily to ISPs or large corporate clients. And it basically allows network administrators to set up all kinds of different bandwidth usage policies, subscription plans, and then do you know all kinds of different policy filtering and just access control for the network. Does it also support like setting up tracking of users and where they go, or is that a separate system? I think it might tie in with that. It does have like network intrusive features, things like keeping track of individual users, tiering of traffic, and enforcing access policies. Oh, what a nice thing to go after then. <laughs> right? So with this undocumented root password, attackers could gain basically full access to the software, and then you can just run any sort of malicious operation that you see fit. Due to that, this vulnerability received a somewhat rare severity score of 9.8 out of 10 on the CVSS version 3 scale. Yeah, well, it doesn't help that Cisco says there's no workarounds or mitigating factors and that customers will just have to install the patch issued yesterday to remove the, quote, secret password. (laughs) Yeah, it's included in Cisco Policy Suite version 18.2.0. All prior versions, yeah, that's right, all prior versions are considered vulnerable. One piece that I thought was really interesting in this story is that Cisco found this themselves. It wasn't reported by anyone else. They found it during internal security audits, and they suspect that it was just basically, as is so common, left behind as a software debugging helper, right? So, oh, yep, you don't want to, you don't have to do, deal with all this configuration. We'll just have this easy root password. And then it was never taken out. Well, I guess props to them for finding it. It's sort of like fixing the barn door after the cows have come home, but at least they actually found it, and it's confidence-inspiring to know they're doing these audits. Yes, actually, this is the fifth undocumented password that Cisco has removed from its software in the past five months. So clearly they're taking this seriously. I mean, it is pretty bad press, especially for a big-name enterprise vendor like Cisco. Um, Besides this CVE, they also patched 24 other security issues, including three that were also at the critical level, and they are all affecting the same product, the Cisco Policy Suite software, and providing unauthenticated access for remote attackers. So these are all serious, pretty much regardless. If you're using Policy Suite, go patch your shit. Now that we're warmed up, let's talk about an outage. The Google Cloud platform went down for a brief bit. 
which also took out Spotify, Snapchat, and other popular sites. Yeah, including a little program maybe you've heard of called Pokemon Go. Oh, no! Now, what's kind of interesting here is just the decent breakdown that Google's had. Now, it, it's not all the details that I might want to know, but unfortunately, without a you know without an internal ear to bend, that's kind of difficult. But here's what we got. On Tuesday, 17th of July 2018, customers using the Google Cloud App Engine, Google HTTPS Load Balancer, or the TCP SSL Proxy Load Balancer experienced elevated error rates ranging from between 33% to 87% for a duration of 32 minutes. Customers would have observed errors consisting of either 502 return codes or just plain old connection resets. Now, they do have some good numbers on just what happened, and I think this really does underscore when you're dealing with an outage, you really should be keeping a timeline, logging what everyone's doing, logging when you learn things, and they're so valuable for the post-mortem analysis. So this all started at 12.17, PDT that is. Uh, starting then, Google Cloud HTTPS load balancers started returning 502s for some requests that they received. Automated monitoring alerted Google's engineering team to the event at 12.19. Yeah, that's right, like two minutes later. Uh, it then took them uh, a little more than a half hour, and by 12.44, the team had identified what they suspected was the root cause and deployed a fix. At 12.49, that fix became effective, and 502s returned to a normal level. There was still some degraded latency for a few more minutes, just as you know, traffic kind of bounced back and all the caches warmed up. So by 12.55, services were all fully recovered. One more little snafu as a result, the cloud CDN cache hits dropped 70%, basically just due to decreased references to cloud CDN URLs from services running behind all those load balancers, and an inability to validate stale cache entries or insert new content on cache misses. So, you know, that, that kind of is essential to how caches operate. Any services running on Google's Kubernetes engine or using the ingress resource would have also served 502 return codes. And Google Cloud storage traffic served behind cloud load balancers was also impacted. So part of me is pretty grateful that we're getting this postmortem to begin with from Google. But it is vague. And if you read between the lines, it appears the root cause of this entire thing might have been them rolling out a new feature to the platform that they haven't yet announced. Uh, they kind of get into it a little bit. Yeah, so just to understand this, you first need to understand that Google's global load balancers are based on a two-tiered architecture of what they call Google front ends, or GFEs. The first tier of GFEs answer requests as close to possible as the user, right? So these are the things that will be, you know, probably with DNS or other methods, as close to you as possible to maximize performance during connection setup so that you get the lowest latency you can. Those first-tier GFEs then route requests to a second layer of GFEs located close to the service that the request is actually using. So this has a couple advantages, namely that this, this architecture allows clients to have low-latency connections anywhere in the world. And then once you're through that first layer, you get to take advantage of Google's global, really fast internal network to serve requests to the backends regardless of where they're located. And you no longer have to rely on the kind of slow public internet. So a little more detail the GFE development team was in the process of adding some features to improve security and performance, you know, always getting things better out there. These features had been introduced to the second layer of GFEs, but had not yet actually been deployed. So they were, you know, in theory behind some sort of feature gate. Unfortunately, one of the features contained a bug which would cause the GFE to restart. This bug had not been detected in either testing or during the initial rollout. How did this all actually start? Like, you know, in theory, this is behind a feature gate. Well... 
the beginning of the event, a configuration change in the production environment. Boy, that, that phrase just sends shivers down my spine that, right there. <laughs> anyway, after this production environment, after this change in the production environment, that triggered the bug. This little tiny change started triggering the bug intermittently, which caused affected GFEs to repeatedly restart. To make this even worse, restarts are not instantaneous, so the availability of the second layer was greatly reduced. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a total blackout here. Some requests were correctly answered, but other requests were interrupted or just totally denied due to a lack of capacity in the second layer of GFEs. Thankfully, you know, they have really good monitoring in general over at Google, so engineers were alerted to the issue within like three minutes and began immediately investigating. Once they'd figured it out, they were able to revert the configuration change that was to blame. That caused the GFEs to no longer restart as, you know, back behind the feature gate. And then eventually things just returned to normal. Yeah. So three minutes is a, is a pretty good response time, really. Uh, and so the entire outage ranged from 12.17 p.m. to 12.49 p.m. Again, like Wes said, Pacific time. Yeah, really not bad. I mean, unfortunately, as you see, it's interesting to note that, you know, Primarily how the mainstream press reports this is all just about the various services hosted on that. So anytime, now that we're so centralized on cloud services, anytime there's almost any issue at all, it has some pretty big ramifications, especially for large businesses that rely on Google to host billions of requests for them. That can be even, you know, even half an hour of downtime can have some serious revenue impacts. So you might ask, since this is kind of a big deal, what is Google doing about it? Well, they've got a couple steps that they'll be as they say, immediately implementing. So one, they're adding additional safeguards to disable features not yet in service. Okay, that seems like a pretty good idea. Then they're also planning to increase the hardening of the GFE testing stack. Since obviously this got through, it's time to you know add some more tests, make that a little more resilient, and reduce the risk of having another latent bug in production. They'll also be pursuing additional isolation between different GFE shard pools in order to reduce the scope of failure. So if another bug does get through, in theory, it would affect less of the GFEs at one time. And finally, to try and help speed things up in the future, they're planning to create a new consolidated dashboard for all configuration changes for GFE pools so that engineers can more easily detect and observe just what's happening with that configuration. Did I hear dashboard in there? Oh, you sure did. Something tells me when Google builds a dashboard, it's a pretty cool dashboard. <laughs> They're probably a big like NASA Center style dashboard is what I'm picturing now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. There's some some giant knock somewhere deep in the heart of Google and uh, it's getting a little more detailed today. Business iPhone users in India have been targeted in a sophisticated attack that's running on bogus mobile device management servers. Using maybe physical access or more likely social engineering, certificates from a selection of two sketchy MDM servers were installed on targeted iPhones. This gave the hacker-controlled MDMs admin rights that were abused to load bogus versions of WhatsApp, Telegram, and other apps. Now, if you don't work for a large enterprise, maybe you're not familiar with MDMs, but they basically allow root access for any sort of management company, right? So this is commonly deployed by people that are concerned with, you know, trade secrets or other intellectual property being being held on employees' phones. And so you want to go have things, make sure like, okay, yes, you enforce policies, things like you have a strong password set, you haven't jailbroken your device, things like that. And of course, because of all that power, in this case, data, including emails, SMSs, and other messages sent through in world smartphones was subsequently uploaded to systems under the control of the attackers. Interestingly, they set up an open source MDM, and that's what they used to deploy the malicious code into secure chat applications, well, let's say, otherwise secure chat applications such as Telegram and WhatsApp. 
Right. The researchers at Cisco Talos explained that the attacker used the B option sideloading technique to add features to legitimate apps, including the messaging apps like WhatsApp and Telegram. And then they were deployed using the MDM server onto the 13 targeted devices in India. The malicious code inserted into these apps is capable of collecting and extracting information from the device, like the phone number, the serial number, the location, the contacts, the user phone, the SMS message, because the MDM server is capable of getting access to all of that. And you get this handy feature of sideloading, which you don't typically get when you have a consumer version of iOS that isn't configured to be connected to a management server. Yeah, right. I mean, once one of these is enrolled and trusted on your phone, it has so much power. Also, in case you were curious, B-Options is a sideloading technique that uses dynamic libraries to inject new code into applications. That was a new one for me. That's fascinating. That's new for me, too. And I suppose they can do a bunch of things in the background that the user isn't aware of. I mean, the process of connecting to an MDM server is very much a user-intensive process that brings up a lot of dialogues. But once it's set up, it's essentially root. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I can I can definitely imagine if you're not super technical and someone's convinced you that they work for your IT department or are otherwise trustworthy and they're just like, hey, let me use your phone for a second or, you know, just like, hey, you need to install this and then it'll help fix whatever issue you're having. Once it's done, you're done. Now, interestingly, the attackers tried to pretend they were Russian by using a mail.ru email, but the Talos group found testing devices enrolled on the MTM with an Indian phone number and registered on an Indian provider. If I was doing anything illegal like this, I would absolutely try to pose as a Russian. That's the way to do it right now. (laughs) It's just so believable. Now, by the time the researchers had been involved, Apple had already pulled three of the digital certificates associated with this hacking group. uh, And then the researchers also identified two other certificates that were revoked shortly thereafter. That seems like they're pretty on top of it. Yes, it does. A major voting machine maker, Election Systems and Software, revealed in a letter to a U.S. senator that it installed remote access software on its machines over a period of six years. The revelation raises substantial security concerns, and as reported by Motherboard, they have the letter and they have the details, which we will now pass on to you. Yeah, I would say security concerns are maybe a bit of an understatement here. Now, ESNS admitted in the letter sent to Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon back in April that it had provided the embattled remote connection software called PC Anywhere to, quote unquote, a small number of customers between 2000 and 2006. In those years, ESNS was one of the top voting machine makers in the United States. The company makes systems used to manage voting booths and to tabulate the final results from those booths. In 2006, at least 60%, yeah, that's right, 60% of ballots cast in the U.S. were added up by ESNS systems. In the early 2000s, when I was working at a financial institution, a.k.a. a bank, we used PC Anywhere pretty heavily. Well, really, a lot of the vendors that supported the bank. And some of them used modems, and then over time, they started using an, an Internet version of PC Anywhere. But one setup with PC Anywhere that was super common for at least our financial institution was you'd have a modem hanging off of a server with the phone line disconnected. And then the vendor would say, OK, we're ready to try to connect in. You would go into the server room and plug the connection into the modem. Then they would dial in, manage the system, and then disconnect. And then I would walk back in there and unplug the cable again. And that was our system for managing PC Anywhere, which was pretty popular amongst all the software vendors. 
it does sound like at least you guys were aware that there could be problems with leaving such a system connected all the time, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. What makes this whole thing worse is that PC Anywhere's security vulnerabilities have been very well documented in the past. Back in 2006, hackers stole the source for PC Anywhere and then stayed quiet about it until 2012, six years later, when a hacker published part of the code online. Yeah, and the worst part about that was Symantec never really said much. They just kind of vaguely said, hey, you should probably stop using our software. Uh, just go ahead and uninstall it. But they didn't say because the source code has been leaked and you are extremely vulnerable. They, they left that part out. Yikes. At the same time, researchers studying PC Anywhere's code found a vulnerability that could let a hacker take control of a whole system and bypass the need to enter a password of any kind. So where are we today? Well, ESNS told Senator Wyden that by December of 2007, it stopped installing PC Anywhere on its systems after new federal voting system standards were released. Those new standards limited election systems to containing solely voting and tabulation software, eliminating any other superfluous software. Unfortunately, ESNS also defended its use of PC Anywhere, calling it an accepted practice by numerous technology companies. Yes and no. I feel like we need to have an accepted standard where there's certain types of hardware that are so important that you just send a tech physically there. And we just have that exception for certain kinds of hardware like reactor machines, uh, systems that control dams, perhaps voting systems would be in this category as well. It would be so nice to have a solid, secure, remote control solution. But the best solution is just not to have an internet connection at all and to use sneaker net for the data that's on that thing and leave it offline. And I think there should just be a accepted industry standard for a category of systems that fall within this. And all of these cyber nightmares that we're experiencing right now would be pretty much taken care of if we just disconnected some of these things from remote access. Because to facilitate that PC Anywhere connection, it either has a modem hanging off the back, unlikely, it probably is connected to an Ethernet connection somewhere, which is probably on a LAN, which means there's probably additional threat vectors that just facilitating that PC Anywhere connection brings along with it. You, you don't, it's not in isolation, in other words. So I feel like we should reconsider the type of systems that we have out there. And maybe as an industry, we should just be saying this layer of systems is so important that it has an associated cost of you have to send a tech physically to it. That's just how those category of systems are. Am I crazy? No, not at all. You know, I mean, we all love convenience and technology can enable that. But as we talk about so often... Security and convenience is a spectrum, and you really have to be careful where you choose to be on that spectrum. And for things like voting, which are pretty much essential to democracy, why are we cutting costs? Yes, it's more expensive. Yes, it takes more time. But it's important enough that we should just get it right, save areas, save money in other areas, and let's protect the integrity of our voting systems. How about this one? A malware author has built a huge botnet comprised of over 18,000 routers in the span of one day. Yeah, you heard that right. One freaking day. This botnet was built by exploiting a vulnerability in Huawei HG532 routers. This is tracked as CVE 2017-17215. Now, scans for this vulnerability, which can be exploited via the suspicious port 37215, started yesterday morning, July 18th, according to data collected by NetLab's NetScan system. By late in that same day, 
the botnet had already gathered 18,000 routers. Now, what's interesting also here is that the botnet author actually reached out to security researchers to brag about his actions, even sharing a list of the IP addresses of all the botnet's victims. So he's bragging, essentially, just saying, hey, look what I could do, and uh, here they are if you want to confirm it. Like, he wants the attention. Yeah, exactly. Why else would you you know, reach out to a pretty well-known security researcher? It just doesn't – that's basically the only reason I can think of. Unfortunately, uh, while he did identify himself as anarchy, did not provide a reason why he went to all the trouble of creating this botnet. Because he could, Wes. Because he could. Now, of course – that's just going to happen, right? There are bad actors in the world. We're, we're all very well aware of that if you listen to the TextNet program. The real problem with this is the just the ease with which Anarchy was able to build such a gigantic botnet in such a short time frame. And he didn't do it with a zero day or some vulnerability that had never been exploited before. He did it with a high-profile vulnerability that many botnets have already exploited. In fact, the CVE is a well-known exploit that has been abused by at least two versions of the Satori botnet and many of the smaller Mirai-based offshoots. You would think that by now, users would have patched at least a few of these devices or ISPs would have blocked incoming connections on that port, but we just don't live in that world, I'm afraid. That's really the question, and I know that's a fine line, but you would think for the health of their networks, ISPs would be taking care of this. Yes, right? You know, like maybe even voluntarily seeking information for customers if they're using the affected router or trying to detect traffic. And if it's, you know, if it looks suspicious, then blocking it. That's part of the point, right? Many of these things do have IDS systems or other sort of network scanning capabilities. At some point, it just becomes negligence. Yeah, I'd also add it really shows you something here. What it shows you is what a massive botnet someone can build in less than a day simply because of the sad state of these home and small office routers that are out there. Now, normally, I would say, you know, just go get a patch. But in this case, the router is not so great. So if you're affected and you can afford it, just get something better. Dio.co slash snap. Build better applications with DigitalOcean's infrastructure that you can deploy in less than 55 seconds. Enterprise-grade SSDs for every type of system you can deploy. 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisor and a dashboard for days. It's super simple and yet incredibly powerful. So everyone on your team is capable of using it, even when you have a team of one. Dio.co slash snap. You go there, you get a $100 credit. You can kick the tires over DigitalOcean for 60 days for for as long as you can use really $100. I don't know what you're going to do with it because I used to have a $10 promo. I would used to say you could run a $5 rig two months for free. I mean, $100 would get you very far. So perhaps it might be worth playing with one of their super high-end systems, their rigs with like 192 gigs of RAM or six core processors or the CPU optimized droplets to get you super fast cores, direct access, guaranteed performance, which we use for FFmpeg encoding these days. They have mix and match droplets as well. And then they have a bunch of really good platform features, things like global data centers that you can deploy to all over the world, cloud firewalls that block the traffic at their network level instead of having it hit your box at all, monitoring and alerting baked 
reach right in and great DNS management that makes it super easy to get systems set up and deployed, as well as like adding SSH keys and uh, getting systems from an image deployed and one-click deployments of entire application stacks. It, there's a lot of things in there to make using DigitalOcean simple and straightforward. With predictable costs, industry-leading price to performance, I encourage you to check it out. Go to do.co slash snap. That's do.co slash snap. Also, I'd like to take a moment and say thank you to Ting for supporting the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go to support us and to get a $25 credit if you want to buy a device or if you bring one, get $25 in service credit and then you can use Ting for like a month because the average Ting bill is about $23, $24 per month per phone. It's pay for what you use wireless. That's why it's smarter than unlimited. You use less, you pay less. If you don't text, you don't pay for texts. If you don't make phone calls, you don't pay for minutes. You just pay for the minutes, messages, and megabytes you use with nationwide coverage, no contracts, no early termination fees, and of course, a fantastic control panel. But don't don't take my word for it. Take consumer reports. Ting is consistently rated one of the best cellular carriers by consumer reports. They have an 88 rating, which is above every other cellular carrier you've pretty much heard of, including the duopolies, because it's not just the little edge case things or the flashy things that somebody in a leather jacket might advertise. It's everything about the service from the flexibility with GSM and CDMA, the customer service, the incredible pricing, the great devices, and the passionate customer support who actually just really like phones and are geeks. You can see a little bit of that on their blog. If you go to techsnap.ting.com, head over there and read some of the tips they have on their blog. They're really kind of useful stuff. I think that's one of my favorite things about Ting is they really follow this stuff. And it shows, too. And some of the devices they have selected, they're the ones that are really great value. Like they hit that sweet spot between an advanced feature phone or a smartphone, but with a good price point. Like they they have some feature phones on there that are 60, 70 bucks, and then you $6 a month for your line and then just your usage. If you just need a backup phone, that could be around six, six, ten bucks a month. Who knows? I mean, I don't know. Uncle Sam's got his cut, but it's really worth considering. Or if you need a backup MiFi, or if you got a tablet that you want to use occasionally out when you're traveling, just put a SIM card in there because you can get a SIM directly as well. There's a lot to consider. So check them out. There's a lot of different ways you can use Ting. So give it a go by going to techsnap.ting.com. And of course, it wouldn't be a TechSnap program without saying thank you to iX, the only hardware provider I recommend. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to support the show and learn more about iX. They'll build a solution around open source software for you that's perfect for your needs. White glove service from beginning to end. But there are different ways to think about iX too. Like, for example, in my case, in a media shop, you can use iX hardware and software together to deliver high-end performance to your editors and, of course, keep your data safe. Like TrueNAS, for example, it has an easy-to-use interface. It offers award-winning enterprise-level support. And I love this part. You can get it with flash memory acceleration, so that way you can have multiple 4K streams. It offers enterprise class functionality and storage for up to millions of files. You could easily expand some TrueNAS units up to 5 petabytes. Has open ZFS so you know your data is safe. You can get up to 24-7 support with this thing. It's the kind of system you can build a business around with redundant power, non-disruptive firmware updates, 
and OpenZFS keeping your data safe constantly. But whatever your use case is, if it's compute, if it's storage, if you need a rack full of web servers, IX can build it for you just the way you need it, and they know how to support this software and make it tick. IXSystems.com slash techstamp. Go there, learn more, check out their white paper. I encourage you to check them out for infrastructure needs, for data storage needs, or maybe even just for a simple NAS in the corner that's keeping everybody's files safe and backed up. Give it a go at IXSystems.com slash techsnap. Thank you for going to techsnap.systems slash contact to send us all of your wonderful feedback, war stories, or sometimes horror stories. This week, we've got some feedback from our friend Anion, who writes, Hello, Chris and Wes. I still love the show. I follow most JB podcasts, but TechSnap is probably my favorite. Oh, hey, well, thank you. Now, I have a question about backups. I managed to cause some major problems at my own company when I fiddled with our NextCloud encryption settings and accidentally crypto-locked a lot of our data. Oh gosh, I am sorry to hear that. Wow. Yeah. It all started on one evening when a colleague of mine had problems syncing some files. I had a look at the logs, and it seemed that it had something to do with the server-side encryption I turned on just a few months ago. Since it was causing problems, I decided, tired after a long day of work, to just turn the encryption off again. I checked the manual, created a snapshot of the volume the data was stored on, entered the commands, and went home. The next morning, everybody turned on their laptop, and a lot of files started syncing, but they could not open them. They were suddenly encrypted. It turned out there is a bug with the decryption. And to add insult to injury, the file snapshot alone did not help recovery immediately because I had forgotten to snapshot the database as well, which was on another volume. I'm still trying to recover some data. Luckily, a lot of data was not synced yet or could be recovered otherwise, but we're still working on it. Now, that's just the backstory. Here's my actual question. Where can I find some resources on how to build a better backup solution for our company? In general, snapshots have been great, but I get the feeling they're not really a useful backup for data, and they definitely don't fit every need that I have. So I want backup on a file level. Well, being a listener since Dan was a host, I of course looked at Bacula, but I'm not sure how complicated that is to actually manage. An alternative might be something like Burp, but in general, I'm just not sure where to start. Do I need such tools, or are some cron jobs with F-Sync fine for a place to start? Where can I learn more about good backup practices? Now, the Bacula handbook has been great, but Do you have any other go-to resources? Am I overthinking this, and I just need to make sure we have a copy of all data somewhere, no matter how organized? Are snapshots just fine? We're just a startup at this point, so it's not a huge amount of data overall. It would be really great to get some input from you guys. How do you manage backups in cloud infrastructure? For example, on DigitalOcean. Anyway, keep going with the great show, and greetings from Germany. Yikes, I am really sorry to hear that. I mean, that is just super unfortunate. I'm glad that you're able to have been able to recover most of that, but I can see, you know, now is a great time to review your backup strategy. He's asking the right questions, right? I mean, he's really, he's got his head in the right spot and he needs to be figuring this out. There's definitely some resources we can provide. So we'll link to those in the show notes at techsnap.systems slash 375. Definitely check those out. Uh, specifically in regards to your VPS question. And I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts, Wes, but when I read all of that, 
My first thought was, is it possible to bring in a consultant to consult with on a backup strategy, at least to help you think through some of this? Even if they're not the ones to implement it, they might have a decent perspective on the situation. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I mean, unless you feel comfortable or have staff on hand comfortable, the first place to start is just identifying, you know, what important information you have, how important it is, and, you know, maybe where there are different tiers. Some data it's easy to fetch again from other sources, and other data is, you know, a unique part of your business that you really can't afford to lose. The other thing I would say is snapshots are great, and they're a great way to, you know, be able to have rollback strategies and undo configuration changes. They're great for a many number of reasons, but in most cases, they're definitely not a backup. Um, a phrase I like I've heard before is, uh, two is one and one is none. Um, and really I would, I would say aim, aim for three copies of anything that you don't want to lose and especially make sure that at least one of those is offsite or somewhere else. You know, whether that's a cloud provider or in another data center somewhere else, you really got to make sure that you've thought about all the different disaster disaster scenarios and what that might mean for your data integrity. And of course, there's there's tons of different tools. You know, some some ones I've used before that I've liked have been Duplicity, uh, Borg, and Restic. I think it would also be a shame if we didn't mention Tarsnap, which can be an excellent backup utility if if that fits your needs. But really, what you need to start is think about you know. What data do we have? How much of it? How often does it change? So you can start to determine things like, you know, how many copies do we need? Where should we keep them? Maybe you already are using things like S3 or Dropbox or other options that will be, you know, good repositories for data. Or maybe you just have some external hard drives that you can rotate around, uh, you know, put one in a bank vault or put, put one at your house. It, it really can vary depending on the level of data that you have and what your actual you know, aims of backup are, but you got to start thinking about it. And then you can try to implement some actual tools. Now, if you're concerned about this happening again, yes, cron jobs and hard syncs will definitely be fine because worst case, you end up not needing those backups. And when you have a new solution, you can delete them. I'll plus one your recommendation for Borg though, because I think that that strikes the balance between using R scripts and CP commands, but not implementing Bacula. Like Borg sits pretty comfortably in the middle. It's pretty easy to understand. It's pretty competent and it supports backing up to disks or just mount points in general. So really a strong plus one for me on Borg. There's also a handy script out there called Borgmatic. Uh, and, and that's just a handy Python wrapper script that will let you do things like set retention policy, validate backups for consistency, that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a couple tools out there that have a lot of additional tooling so you can get this as automated as you need. Hmm, I'll put a link for that in the show notes too. So hopefully that's helped you get, you know, a good place to start, but please let us know what you end up doing and how it works for you. I think we would love that. And of course, if any else, anyone else in the audience has suggestions for their favorite backup tools, maybe some tools we should review or cover here on the show, or just tools that have helped you out in a bind, of course, let us know. Yeah, techsnap.system slash contact. I'll also add to that any methodologies or best practices that you're just screaming at your uh, speaker right now saying, guys, you should really mention this. He has to consider this. We'd love to hear that too. techsnap.system slash contact. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the TechSnap program. Yeah, thanks everybody for catching this week's episode. If you want to get next week's episode and future episodes, go to techsnap.systems slash subscribe. Also, maybe we should do a quick happy eighth birthday to OpenStack. OpenStack's birthday was July 19th. So it's that's when they technically officially recognize it. So technically today 
is OpenStack's eighth birthday as we record this episode. Isn't that kind of neat? Happy birthday, OpenStack. You have helped so many people automate a great number of things. Now you can go get more Wes. He's on the Linux Unplugged program, and he's also on Twitter at Wes Payne. I'm at Chris LAS and links to everything we covered in this week's episode and some of those backup tools, plus a couple we didn't mention, techsnap.systems slash 375. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.